Have you ever seen a really talented illusionist, maybe at a fair or an event or a show or something like that, and you see this guy and he's pulling rabbits out of a hat, he's pulling bowling pins out of a hat, it looks like he's levitating off the ground, he's pulling ribbon after ribbon after ribbon out of his mouth, and you kind of know what he's doing, right? You know that he's trying to get you to look in one place when he's really doing something somewhere else where you can't really see the whole thing. You know what he's doing. You just can't figure out how he's doing it. And so you try to look in the other place, but you never quite look in the right place, always looking in the wrong places. Yeah, today is Easter Sunday, and it is the day where we get to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that pivotal, crucial moment in all of human history. And yet we know since the first century, the world has always been trying to get us to look in some other place, right? The world tells us, oh, look at the disciples. Maybe they stole the body and they hid it somewhere. Look at the Romans. Maybe they took the body. Look at Jesus in the south of France. We heard that he married Mary Magdalene and he traveled down there. Yeah, people are actually teaching that. The world is always trying to get us to look in some other place because they tell us we know this. Dead men don't rise from the dead. But we gather this morning and we celebrate. Why? Because we believe, we know that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, that the grave no longer holds him. We know it's no illusion. We know that it's true. And so, still for us, sometimes we look in the wrong places too, don't we? We often still look at the storms of life, the momentary troubles of life. We look at others and we play this comparison game. We look at ourselves and we see our inadequacies and our deficiencies. And so instead of living lives that are just marked by joy and living lives that are this celebratory offering back to the one who gave us life, well, sometimes we live stuck in the suffering stuck in the small deaths along the way because yeah there's full life is full of small deaths right dreams die relationships die things die and so instead of living in the life well we live in the suffering because we're looking at the wrong things you know we're not the only ones peter struggled with this too i want you to see it in a conversation that jesus has immediately following his resurrection. We're in John 21 this morning, John 21 verses 18 through 23. Let me read it to you. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to Peter, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You have to understand what 
Peter and the, all the other disciples had really been through recently, okay? It all started on a Sunday. Peter and Jesus and all the disciples, they were coming into Jerusalem. They were entering into Jerusalem during Passover week. Jesus was riding on a donkey that had never been ridden before. And he's riding almost into this parade route. And the people are, are waving palm branches and they're celebrating and they're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All oh, the people couldn't get enough of Jesus that day. And the religious leaders and the political leaders, well, they took note too, and they knew what Jesus was saying. They, they knew the message that he was giving because Jesus was letting everybody know, anyone who would listen, that he really is the rightful king of Israel and the rightful king of the whole world. Well, on Tuesday, the religious leaders, they began to challenge him based on what they had seen on Monday. Because on Monday, Jesus went to the temple and there outside in the courtyard, he sees these guys just selling things. There's like this business enterprise, this racket they got going on, selling sacrifices and things that you can use and coins that you can use inside the temple. All this is taking place. And so Jesus, he walks into this, he sees it and he flips over the tables and he lets these guys know, my father's house will be a house of prayer and you're making it into a den of thieves. Now, the interesting thing about that story is if I'm one of those guys, I mean, if this is my business, the way I'm trying to eke out a living and some guy comes by and flips over my table, well, he and I are going to have words, right? I mean, he's going to have to help me set things back up. All those animals that he chased away, he's going to need to go gather them up again. No, the guys don't do that. They, they say, oh, okay, hey, we'll clean it up, Jesus. You just go and do whatever it is you need to do. There was something about him. There was something about him. And they knew the look in his eye. And they knew the authority with which he was speaking. Nobody challenged him. There was something about Jesus. Then Thursday hits, and on Thursday, Jesus gathers his disciples for a Passover meal in this upper room. Now, these guys, they would have celebrated Passover before. They knew this meal by heart, I mean, they could have walked you through it. They knew that this is the story of Moses, and they knew the story of Egypt, and they knew the story of the Israelites and how they were subjected to this brutal slavery and how God righteously intervened and freed them from that and how they had to eat standing up that night and how they had to eat on the run and how the Passover reminded them of all of this and this unleavened bread because it didn't have time to rise. But now Jesus is turning it and he's saying, no, it's unleavened because there's no sin. This is my body that was sacrificed for you. And that juice that you drink, this is my blood that will be shed for you. He's explaining to them what's going to happen as he initiates the Lord's Supper. And he tells them, you guys are all going to fall away. And there it was Peter who proclaimed, no, Lord, I'm never leaving you. I'm never falling away. It doesn't matter if all the other guys do. This is my unwielding loyalty to you. I'm not going anywhere. Jesus says, Peter, tonight before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter insists, never, Lord, that will never happen. 
Several hours later, Jesus, Peter, James, John, they would be in the garden of Gethsemane praying. The disciples fall asleep. Peter goes and he wakes the guys. And then Judas showed up. Judas had betrayed Jesus over to the religious leaders and to the political leaders. And everything happened so fast. This was their one opportunity. The, the disciples didn't see it coming. I mean, nobody would see it coming being arrested during Passover week. No, it had to be after. After that, nobody would, ex would have expected the arrest of Jesus then, but it happened. The political leaders, the religious leaders, they seize the opportunity that Judas provides. They arrest him and they march him through this kangaroo court. So by Friday, just a day later, there's Jesus preparing to be crucified. And he would end up on a cross on that Friday, that, fr that Friday. Jesus, Peter, all the other disciples, they folded. They denied him just the way Jesus said they would. And then the time came when Jesus died. And when he was finally dead, the order had been given. Permission had been granted for his body to be taken down and to be buried in a borrowed tomb, borrowed from a friend. The women, they're... They're mourning, they're grieving that Friday evening. They're gathering spices so they can come back on Sunday and perform a, a, just the last type of burial, funeral service for Jesus. On Saturday, there, there couldn't be any, any gathering of spices. Work like that just couldn't be done on the Sabbath. And then Sunday came and the women, they waited, but bar they barely waited as soon as they could. Just as soon as sunrise on Sunday morning, they went to the tomb and the rock was rolled away. The tomb was empty, just like Jesus said it would be. He had, in fact, risen from the dead. The women, they go back to tell the disciples, the disciples at this time, well, they're hiding back in a little room with a locked door. They're afraid that the Jews and the others will do to them just what they've done to Jesus. They're afraid for their lives. But the women, they come and they tell them the tomb is empty. You got to come see it. And so Peter and John, they go and they run, they race to the tomb and they get there and they see it is in fact empty. John was the first to believe Peter and John, they go back and Sunday evening. Evening. Well, the disciples are hiding in that room again. They're debating, is Jesus really alive? And then Jesus showed up and he tells them, yes, I am alive, peace. And now these guys who are so afraid, who are hiding behind this room, he tells them, you know what? I'm sending you out to those people that you are afraid to go to, those people who think, who you think want you dead because they've, they just crucified me. I'm sending you to them in the same way the father has sent me. Behold, I'm now sending you. See, one of the first things that Jesus wants to make sure that these disciples understand is that they're not made to hide behind locked rooms. They're, they're not made to hide at all. They're actually made to make disciples. And it's the same with us. We're made to make disciples. And so Jesus would tell them, okay, you need to go to Galilee. Or we're going to meet in Galilee. So the disciples do. They go to Galilee and it's Galilee where these guys grew up. It's Galilee. This is their hometown. This is where a lot of them, this is what they're familiar with. And they go there and they go back to doing what's familiar. They go back to doing the thing that they can do in their sleep. They go back to fishing. And so they're in this boat and they're fishing and it's the one thing that they know how to do. And yet they fish all night long and they catch nothing. 
the one thing that they're supposed to be able to do in their sleep, and they can't do it at all. And then Jesus shows up that morning. They don't know who he is. He's just a guy standing on the shore, and he's calling out to these guys, hey, you need to throw your nets on the other side of the boat. I mean, there's no more other side of the boat. They've thrown their nets on all kinds of sides, but just for laughs, they go ahead, okay, we'll throw it over there. And they throw their net on the other side. Next thing you know, they've got this huge haul of fish, so much so it's almost tipping their boat over. And as they're struggling and all these guys together pulling this net up, John looks over to Peter says, it's got to be Jesus. Can't be anybody else. It's got to be Jesus. Peter immediately, he just lets go. He jumps into the sea. He swims to shore. And it's there that this conversation begins. Jesus invites these guys for breakfast. They, they relive the moments and recall some of the moments of what life would have been like over the past three years serving with them. And then after breakfast ends, Jesus has this conversation with Peter. Because Peter had denied Jesus, he was at the lowest of lows there, and Jesus and Peter, they had made eye contact right when it all went down. And so Peter, he's sitting close enough to Jesus around that fire where he can see the scars on Jesus. He can see the scars on his hands, the scars on his feet, the scars on his forehead. He can see the scars from the crucifixion. And Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter, sitting across from Jesus, he can see what love's, love looks like. And he answers in a way to Jesus, Jesus, I can't say that I love you the way you love me. And Jesus says, okay. That's all right. We're going to start right where you are. Let's start right where you are. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And so he, he brings Peter to this point where he's not condemning Peter. He is conforming Peter. He's letting Peter know, I'm not done with you yet. And now the conversation turns again because Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you may not love me the way I love you right now, but there's going to, be, there's going to come a day when people are going to come. They're going, to, they're going to stretch out your arms. They're going to clothe you. They're going to lead you to this place where you don't want to go. You don't want to go there because it's the place of your death. It's going to be the place of your crucifixion. Jesus is prophesying to Peter the type of death that he's going to die, how he's going to die a martyr's death. He's letting Peter know your love is going to grow to a point. Your obedience is going to mature to this point where you will, in fact, Peter, love me the way I love you. I'm bringing this about in your life. Well, Peter, he doesn't seem all too excited about this news because he knows the result, right? Oh, boy, I get to grow. I'm going to love the way you love yeah, but that ends in a crucifixion. He's not too excited about that. And so as Jesus and Peter are walking along, he notices John. And so Peter gets distracted. He's not focused on this maturity and this growth and this obedience that Jesus is forming in his life. Instead, he sees John and he says, Jesus, what about him? What, what are you going to do with him? Why, is he going to do the same thing? I mean, do you like him more than me, Jesus? What's going to happen with John? Now notice, this is a moment of restoration. This is a moment of, of Jesus restoring 
Peter and just building into him that I'm not done with you, Peter. I'm still going to use you. You're going to grow to this. You're going to impact people. There, the, yeah, there was that time when you were put on the carpet and you denied me, but there's going to be another time when you won't deny me, where you're going to claim me. And yeah, it's going to cost you your life, but you're going to grow to this, Peter. But Peter, when he hears this, he doesn't look to Jesus he starts looking at everybody else. He's playing the comparison game. He looks at John. He gets distracted. You know, this isn't new for Peter, right? We've seen him in the past take his eyes off of Jesus. You remember that time in the storm where Jesus calls out to Peter and tells him to walk on the water? And Peter does. He gets out of the boat. He starts to walk on the water. And he gets close enough to Jesus where they're in, within arm's reach because Peter then, he looks and he sees the waves. He gets distracted by the storm and he's beginning to sink and he just screams out in an act of desperation, Lord, save me, I'm drowning. And Jesus is close enough to grab him. He's close enough to grab him. It's okay, Peter. I'm with you. I've got you. Why did you doubt? Why did you get distracted? Why did you take your eyes off of me? Yeah, there was that time that had just happened in the courtyard, right? Where Peter is following Jesus at a distance, seeing everything that's going down with this horrible crucifixion that's about to come, this kangaroo court that Jesus is being marched through. And there in the courtyard of the high priest, Peter thinks, well, the same thing that's happened to Jesus might happen to me. And so when people come by and they question him, hey, aren't you one of the guys with Jesus? Well, Peter, he looks at himself in an act of self-preservation. He tells everybody, oh, no, I don't know that guy. I've never seen him before in my life. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm just learning all this just like you are. And now we're here again. And, G and Peter, yeah, he had just jumped into the sea. He just swam up to see Jesus. And now Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, you may not love me the way I love you right now, but you're going to grow to that. I, it's going to progress to that. And Peter, instead of looking at Jesus, he looks at John. What about John? Is he going to have to die that kind of death too? Is, is that going to happen to him too? And Jesus says, what is that to you? What, whatever I do with John, what does that matter to you? I mean, I could keep him alive until I return again. You follow me. And the rumor mill is started. I mean, Peter, he must have gone back and told all the other disciples. I think John's going to make it until Jesus returns. And so there's this belief among the disciples. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus is just letting Peter know, Peter, don't focus on John. You focus on me. You follow me. See, there's this comparison game that we play, isn't there? It starts early where we start looking at everybody else. We measure ourselves against everybody else. We compare ourselves to everybody else. Yeah, I remember my oldest daughter, Emma, when she was born, one of the very first things that the doctor told us was, well, it looks like your daughter's in the 99th percentile for height. And her head circumference is about the 30th percentile. I mean, what, what are you supposed to do with that, right? I mean, are you going to love her any different? Are we supposed to hold some kind of family meeting? Okay, how are we supposed to love a tall girl with a small head? No, it doesn't change anything. You just love. But the comparison game starts early, and few of us ever get over it. We still compare ourselves. We, we, we look and we judge ourselves based on the way other people look informs us of how we ought to look. What, what other people have, it tells us what we ought to have. And so we base our lives oftentimes by looking at the lives of others when Jesus is saying, no, 
Look to me. Follow me. You know, we live with this theology of scarcity because the world is telling us that everything is running out. Right? Our oil supply is running out. Fresh water supply is running out. Coal and gas running out. The sun is only going to burn for so long. Everything is running out. And so when we see that somebody else has something, well, we've got to get it too before somebody else gets it. There's this theology of scarcity. That there's only so much to go around. Now, in my position, I am able to officiate funerals. And so I had those conversations when people are mourning the, the death of a loved one or by the, the bedside of somebody who's about to die. And so I get to have these conversations. And in those conversations, you know what people talk about? <laughs> they talk about moments. They, they, they talk about moments of joy and moments of laughter and, and moments where, where they just sacrificed for somebody else and they gave their time, their skill, their resources for somebody else. You know what they never talk about? Oh man, my bank account, I've got this much money, uh, they, they had all this cool stuff. No, that, that doesn't really come up ever. It's always the moments. It's the moments with people, those moments that you could go back and you could relive time and time and time again if you were able to. It's the moments of life that matter. But the world is always trying to get us to look in the wrong places. See, we should be looking here, but the world is always saying, no, look here, look here, look there. And so we get distracted and we look in all the wrong places. And sometimes this theology of scarcity and looking in all the wrong places, well, it affects the way that we look at God too. Because we look at him and we think, oh, God, you must be so focused over there with these people that... I don't feel like you've heard my prayer at all. I feel like I've prayed this prayer a thousand times. You've never answered. Maybe if I just got up a little earlier, maybe if I just pray a little longer, maybe if I just prayed a little more, maybe if my life looked a little different, maybe then you'd hear me, maybe then you'd respond. But you got so much going on, maybe you just don't have time for little old me because there's this theology of scarcity that sometimes it even creeps in into the way that we view God. You understand one of the things that Jesus is telling Peter is Peter, there's enough love for me to go around. The, the, the blessing I have for John, yeah, that's John's. But I got a blessing for you, Peter. You're going to grow and you're going to mature and you're going to love the way I love. See, one of the things that Jesus was getting Peter to realize, what we need to realize too, is that Jesus loves you. Jesus really does. He loves you. Now, I'm not talking about like, the world, yes, he does. He loves the world, but he loves you, you in particular. And Jesus was having to get Peter to realize that. See, we hear that statement that Jesus makes to Peter and he says, hey, what happens to John? What is that to you? You follow me. And we hear the rebuke in that. And there's a rebuke there to be sure. But understand, there's also grace because Jesus is letting Peter know, Peter, I got a plan for you. You see, we have to recognize that God made you for a unique purpose. He's made you for a unique purpose. It's not a purpose that anyone else can do. It's, it's just for you. Because you see, Jesus loves you. 
He loves hanging out with you. He loves seeing you grow. He loves seeing you mature. And he loves seeing you walk into a room and, and you seeing a problem that no one else sees and you bring in this solution to it. He loves seeing you when you're in those places that no one else can quite do it the way you can do it. He loves the way he's wired you. He loves the way he spent, he, 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 he loves spending time with you. He loves you. And so Jesus, he's saying to Peter, you follow me. Why? He's in a sense saying to Peter, Peter, get your eyes off the storms of life. Get your eyes off of your own inadequacies and your own deficiencies and your own failures. Get your eyes off of everybody else and playing the comparison game. I want you and I want all of you. You follow me. Come spend time with me. Keep your eyes on me. See, Jesus, he has a unique purpose for you. It's not John's purpose. It's not Peter's purpose. It's not my purpose. It's a purpose that Jesus has tailor made for you. See, God's not going to give you my purpose. Why? Because that's for me. And it's going to be something that I enjoy and something that I'm going to have to work hard at, something that I'm going to want to give my life to if I'm following him. But that's for me. That's the way he's built me and made me. He's going to give you yours. You know, sometimes I'll walk by and I hang out. I got a few friends who are in construction and I, I've seen the things that they can build. I mean, I've seen these houses that they've built. I've, I've seen them just, uh, just kind of revamp something old and turn it into something amazing. I've seen them create and all these different things. And sometimes I'll think to myself, boy, I wish I could do that. I wish I had that kind of talent. And my wife, Steph, she probably thinks it even more than I do, right? I, oh, man, I really wish St Steve could do that. But that's beside the point. Anyway, I talked to these guys, and you, you realize how they develop these skills. And it took a lot of years, a lot of years hanging out with somebody else, a lot of years someone showing them the ropes. And they've got all the scars and the battle wounds to prove it. Some of them lost fingers, portions of fingers, whatever else. Why? Because there are, there's a cost, your body pays a price to learn that skill, to be able to have and fulfill that purpose. And so if someone were to come to me and say, all right, Steve, here you go. Here's a whole bunch of tools, and I've signed you up for a year-long construction apprenticeship. So that means you're going to have to put away all the stuff that you usually do. You're not going to be able to spend as much time studying and preparing to teach and all that. There's going to be no teaching, preaching for the next year. Why? Because you've got to do this. Oh, man, I am out, right? I don't want to do that at all. That's, that's not what I'm made for. Would I love to have all those skills? Yes, absolutely. But, man, I don't want to pay the price. Why? All that's not fun. But there's a price to be paid for what your purpose is. And see, God has made others with their unique purpose. We have to recognize that. That God has created others with their unique purpose, just like he's created you for yours. Now, what happens when you realize that? When you understand, okay, I've got my purpose and they have their purpose. What happens is you begin to see there's enough of God to go around for everybody. That he loves you. You in particular. Not just, oh, God loves everybody and I'm part of everybody. Yeah, that, there's truth there. But God loves you as an individual. And so he's gifted you and he's blessed you and he's got purpose built within you. And when you realize that and you begin to walk in that and, and then you see other people and they're walking in their purpose and their gifts and their talents, the way that God has made and wired them, what happens? Well, you celebrate what, what God's doing in their life. 
It's not a, oh man, I wish I had those skills. It's not a jealousy. It's not an envy. It's a celebration. Man, God's working over there and he's working in my life too. There's enough of God for all of us. He is so big. See, when you're loved the way that Jesus loves, you're part of a family. And when you're part of a family, you celebrate what's going on with the other members of the family. See, Jesus loves us in such a way that when we know him and we have this relationship with him, what does he do? He adopts us into his family. And you know the difference between being a family member and a guest, right? There's some responsibilities that come with being part of the family. You know, if you're a guest and you show up for dinner, what happens? Oh, let's, let's take care of you. Yeah, here, here's your plate. Here's your drink. Can I get something for you? Are you enjoying everything? Oh, the meal is done. Oh, let, let me get that for you. You don't have to worry about it. You just sit down, relax, enjoy yourself. But when you're part of the family, what happens? Well, you can clean that dish. I mean, you can take out the trash. You can do some things. Why? There's responsibility when you're part of the family. Jesus, he makes us part of the family. And he says, listen, there's some responsibilities here. I've made you for a purpose. And I want you to walk in that purpose. And if you're going to walk in that purpose, how are you going to get there? Follow me. What he tells Peter is the same thing that he tells us. Follow me. You follow me. Maybe you're watching this morning and your problem is not believing that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, you believe that. You believe that he is the risen Christ. You're excited to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, the good news of Easter, that moment that changed the world. You know that these disciples, they didn't just die for a lie. They didn't have their lives transformed for no reason. That it changed the course of their life for a reason. You know the tomb is empty. You know that Jesus is alive. Your problem is not belief. Your problem is you get distracted. Just like Peter, you start looking at the storms of, of life and the hardships of life instead of the giver of life. Like Peter, sometimes you look at your own inadequacies and your own failures and, and, and your own deficiencies instead of the one who comes to make all things new, to restore what's been broken. Sometimes you start looking at everybody else and seeing what they've got and what they're doing and you're trying to measure yourself against everybody else instead of looking to Jesus. Because understand this, God is never going to measure you against anybody else. He's not going to ask, oh, how are you doing compared to that person? The only person that God will compare you with is his son because God is conforming you into the image of Jesus. Yeah, maybe your problem isn't belief. Maybe your problem is you get distracted. And so you start looking at everything else. You know, Jesus would tell you the same thing that he told Peter. You follow me. Why? Because I want all of you. I want all your talent. I want all your gift. I want it all fashioned into the purpose that I've created for you. And so you got to take that next step. See, we all have a next step to take. God has a next step for you to take in, in your obedience and your walk with him. Maybe your next step this morning, well, you just need to be part of the family. Maybe you've been away for far too long. You're just tuning in because it's, it's Easter Sunday. But you need to be back with the family of God. You need to be encouraged. You need, you, you need to encourage others. You need to be a part of the family because you are family.
Maybe your next step is you've been coming to this church building for a long time. You, you got a lot of friends here, whatever, but for you, church has been more of almost like a Christian country club. There's no one you can really point to and say, I've made disciples. The one thing that you've been commissioned to do as a Christian, you can't point to anyone and say, oh, I've made an impact. I've discipled this person. Maybe your next step is to feed a sheep, is to invest in someone to disciple them. Maybe you're discipling someone and you're pouring into somebody, but you've never really taken that next step to release them and to challenge them. Okay, the way I've poured into you, I want to know who are the three people that you're now going to pour into. And I'll walk with you as you're pouring into them, but your next step is to release them to go pour into somebody else. Maybe you're doing stuff like that, and that's been part of your rhythm for life. Maybe your next step is to create a mom study in your neighborhood, is to see your neighborhood as a mission field, that God has planted you there for a reason, that you need to go and you need to invest in your neighbors, and you need to start something in your home to really get to know them, to disciple them. Maybe like a friend of mine, you'll realize that your next step is to, is to start some kind of discipleship club, some kind of study at your workplace where you gather your employees together or different employees together, coworkers together before the workday or maybe during lunch break and say, look, we're going to study this. We're going to go through this. We're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to go golfing together. And as we golf, this is what we're going to talk about. This is what we're going to do. Maybe you need to see your workplace as a mission field that God has planted you there for a reason. Maybe your next step this morning really is the first step. Maybe it really is just believing that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead for you. That he's alive to forgive your sin, to, to start this relationship with you so that you can live out the purpose for which he's made you. Maybe that really is your next step this morning. It is the first step. Regardless of what your next step is, you need to know that here at Central, we're committed to helping you take that step. And so we'd love it. If you just write us a note and let us know, hey, here's where I'm at. I don't even know what my next step is, but I know that if I'm following Jesus, well, there's a next step to be taken. And can you help? And I promise you, one of us, will get back to you. We will help you. We will equip you. We will disciple you as you take that next step in your growth and your obedience of following Jesus. See, sometimes... Our biggest problem isn't that we don't believe. It's that we get distracted by all the wrong things. Start looking in all the wrong places. Jesus says to you, you follow me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the tomb is in fact empty. That you are a God who can be followed. And so God, forgive us for when we just look in the storms of life, when we just look at ourselves and our own inadequacies, our own failures, our own deficiencies, when we just look and compare ourselves to others instead of looking to you and your son, the risen Christ, may we follow you well so that we know the next step that we need to take in our obedience. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, who is risen. Amen.